Welcome to this week's podcast. My name is Mickey Badlamenti, and I'm the discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, we've modified our church schedule to help keep people safe. We currently offer on-site Sunday morning services at 9 and 11 a.m. with limited capacity, and we ask that you register ahead of time. Please visit www.rockpoint.org slash register before you join in person. That way we can save your seat. And we also live stream the 11 a.m. service on our YouTube channel. You can always find Rock Point on Facebook or visit the website for more information, including important schedule updates. And while COVID may have affected how we do church, it cannot diminish our efforts together to be the church. We look forward to connecting with you. Enjoy the podcast. Um, just a reminder, especially for those on live stream as well, first service has uh, reinitiated children's ministry again, and so uh, that's going to be happening still in first service, so starting uh, a couple of weeks ago. A um, couple of things here. Uh, one, well, one of those. We're, we're going to be changing some things probably protocol-wise here in a few weeks' time. And we'll talk a little bit about that next week, but I just wanted to be alert to the fact that we are monitoring what's taking place and are making adjustments accordingly. So thank you for your patience uh, thus far in regards to that. Um, Second thing would be this. We have been examining the book of uh, Luke, particularly the sixth chapter in a series entitled Deep Calling. Last week, we were talking about the significance of studying the Scripture and how the Pharisees, the religious leaders, hadn't really read it, or if they had read the scripture, they didn't understand it fully. And um, in a time of gross biblical illiteracy, um, I wanted to make sure that you have some of the tools that you need, and I don't want to assume certain things. And so uh, first thing I want to show you is this. This is a passage or or a page uh, off my Bible that I have. Yours may look somewhat different. Um, This passage we were exploring, Luke chapter 6. Now, here's the thing I want you to kind of be drawn attention to. You'll notice that um, two things. One is in this one, this is a study Bible, and you can get this at any place, okay? Uh, It has notes at the bottom here, and those notes correspond with a passage of Scripture. And so sometimes it'll expand on um, what what it's said there or defining something, and so they're really helpful to read the Scripture and then go to the note and see what it's saying. Uh, The other feature you're going to want to look at is in the center section, or sometimes in another Bible, it may be where these notes are at instead, you'll see references that reference the Scripture you're reading, and then will give you, that'll be in bold, and then it'll give you um, links to other things that relate to it. For example, chapter 6 of Luke, verse 1, leads us to Deuteronomy 23:25. It's going to reference the Sabbath. Um, Luke chapter 6, verse 2, they're saying, hey, you might want to take a look at Matthew chapter 12, verse 2, because it relates to that passage. And so these little notes that are in the, uh, or references that are in the center of your Bible or at the base of it can lead you to a deeper understanding of what's going on in the Scripture. And if you get a study Bible, then it actually has notes that can expand upon it. Um, in verse, 50, uh, verse uh, 39, it's saying old is better. And Jesus was indicating the reluctance of some people to change from their traditional religious ways and try the gospel. So these are ways, along with one other thing I'd recommend to you, are called commentaries. Commentaries are not Scripture. They're comments on the Scripture, okay? Kind of like rabbinical sayings, okay? So they don't have the same weight as Scripture, <clears throat> but they can expand your understanding of it. 
And having multiple commentaries on the same passage is sometimes helpful. So these are just some tools. Now, we also provide something as a church um, that can take you a little deeper as well, too. And these are some discipleship opportunities you can have. And um, Detroit Bible Institute is something we operate here uh, on-site or online. And it's a more academic exploration of the Scripture. Um, there's a men's Bible study, women's Bible studies that are held on-site or Zoom. I understand the men's Bible study uh, just took a hiatus till March 11, is my understanding. And so March 11, they'll be back online again uh, and in person. Um, women's discussion and men's discussion, two separate groups that meet, uh, is also listed here on location. And then there's Journey Moment devotionals, and these are posted regularly. And so you can take a look at those. These are all just ways of equipping you and assisting you so that you yourself can understand the Scripture. And um, someone like me can lead you some directional points, but you should not be completely dependent upon that, okay? So just a little bit of that. Now, before we get into things, let's stop for a moment. Father, first of all, we thank you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for uh, the many ways you've blessed us and ministered to us. Lord, uh, either today or this past week or in this next week to come, uh, many of us will um, give a portion of what you've given to us back to you uh, in tithes and offerings, whether online or in a service like this in one of the boxes in the back or so. And so, Lord, we take a moment to recognize uh, that that action is not just a financial transaction, but it's a spiritual transaction. We do it freely, without coercion. We choose to honor you and, and to be generous in that in the same way that you've been generous to us. And so we release these into your hands. Uh, we thank you. And Father, we ask now that you would penetrate our heart and our mind and our spirit uh, as we explore your word together as a people. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, two quick side notes. One thing, um, snow out there, to me, isn't that just gorgeous? You look at that, and it's just absolutely beautiful. And you wake up and you look at all that snow and you sit here and think, you know, this is so wonderful. I, I just... I'm going to move down south and stop dealing with this. But there's a beauty to it, and we can see beauty even in the midst of the difficulty that we struggle with. And as Michiganders, we do with all this snow. Um, I was uh, driving my, my younger son's vehicle. I'd given him one of ours because uh, it was a little safer, so it's a little bit of a beat-up car. Pulling into Tim Hortons this past week, going to grab a quick breakfast sandwich, uh, something I'll bring in sometimes, and I'll skip lunch and just have that all the way through. You don't care about that. Um, <laughs> I, I pull into the drive-thru, and um, in this kind of semi-beat-up little car, and as I pull up, and I'm handing my card for the charge, the lady there says, the person ahead of you has just paid for your deal. Now, I was preoccupied with what was happening in the day and everything else like that, and that just kind of struck a ray of sunlight through my day. That was a total of four bucks. You know, I was so outraged um, by her actions. Uh, you know, I chased her down and drove her out to the side. No, I waved at her as going out. I don't know who the person is, that, that I know of at least. Um, I suspect they just probably looked at that car and said, this person needs help. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it was a total of four bucks. I think, you know, no big deal. Uh, but it changed my thinking for the day. So I want to put that out there to you as a thought. We'll touch on that a little bit later, perhaps. Luke chapter 6, a deep calling beneath the rage. As we get into this passage, the last one we talked about, Jesus is, is on the Sabbath 
and he's walking through the grain field, and he gets condemned for that. We discussed that last week. You can look that up. Well, here it is. A week later, he's on the Sabbath again, and uh, in this case, he's in the synagogue. Now, the synagogue was um, something that had developed over time. Uh, the temple was, you know, and tabernacle was directed by God. The synagogue was an idea that people came up with as a way of studying Scripture together and being more collegial in their setup, less formal. The closest to a church setting that you would get would be the synagogue. And so it was a local phenomenon, and he's at the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he's teaching. And there's a man there whose right hand was shriveled. It was damaged. We don't know if it was from birth or what had happened. It sounds like a birth defect, but it could have been an illness. So it's shriveled up and and damaged. It's his right hand. It's telling us the most important one for most people and, and how it would be useful. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. And then this line here. So they watched him closely. Watch him closely. Not with a warm intent, but with another purpose. So they watched him closely. What are they watching closely? They want to see if he's going to heal on the Sabbath. He's not going to heal on the Sabbath. He's not going to do that, would he? Would he? So, next verse. Jesus knew what they were thinking. He said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand up in front of everyone. So he got up and, and stood there. Be like me sitting here to James and say, hey, James, stand up right now, and you don't have to do it. And, and he's there, okay, now I'm being called out in front of everybody. He stands up, a little self-conscious maybe, shriveled hand. But the guy responded. It's always a good thing to respond to Jesus, just as a thought, okay? In any situation, whether your hand's shriveled or not, maybe your soul is shriveled. But if he asks you to stand up, you should respond to him. So the man does. And then Jesus says to him in the next verse, I ask you to the Pharisees and everyone in general in the group there, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to to do good or to do evil, to save life or destroy it? Now, for the most part, the Pharisees viewed the Sabbath as a passive experience. They were not supposed to do anything. In fact, it was doing things that got you in trouble. It was a day of rest, and they took this so intense, they forgot that the purpose of it was to fellowship with God. Not to attend church, unless you're fellowshipping with God. Not to do a thousand other things we'd mentioned. But to them, it was to be this passive thing of obeying the law and just being still. So he now presses them and says, wait, outside of the passivity, is it to do good or to evil, to save life or destroy it? He invades the passivity of their actions, and he challenges that by penetrating that passivity and saying, there's an action, which is it going to be? He looked around at them all, watching their response, and they're kind of like. Then he stops and goes back to the man. He says, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was completely restored. Again, it's always good to respond to Jesus, okay? So he responds, and and he's, he's restored. And so this is a miraculous thing. And it would have been a relatively small gathering, a couple hundred people at most, pretty similar maybe this gathering here. It would have been something that they would have known this man probably from birth. They didn't get around a lot or distanced from their towns. And the towns were 1,000 people, 10,000 people, not a whole lot of people. He would have been a known man. And now this guy's hand is restored. That is incredible. That should have been one of those hallelujah moments, Jericho march, you know, screaming and shouting, all that stuff. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. And I don't think it was good things. 
They were furious. Another translation says they were enraged. Rage has a sense of violent anger. You see, they had built their own scaffold of how to reach God by doing works and, and these, these keeping of the law and maintaining these detailed things. And in one moment, God is sweeping through that passivity of those things and challenging them to action and tearing down the scaffold, and they recognize that on a certain level. And so they are furious, they're enraged. We can be at a service like this. We can observe the Sabbath and still be passive as to what's taking place. If we were to explore a little more deeply we find where this anger comes from. Joel Malm has written a book entitled Love Slows Down. And in this, he talks about the fact that anger isn't a sin as much as it's a sign. It's a sign that you feel threatened. He says when you get angry at something happening around you, it's almost always because of something happening inside you. Anger is a secondary emotion. It comes after we feel a threat, which is pre-classic language. But he breaks it down in detail to one or all of three specific things. When we feel threatened in our security, either physical, emotional, or financial, we get angry. When we feel threatened in our connection to other people, our self-esteem, our feelings seen or not seen or understood, then we get angry. Our sense of control this is our sense of empowerment, free will, and having choices and options. But at the root of all the anger is a fear of not getting one of these things or the fear of having it taken away. With these guys in their furious rage, let's go on because this same situation is um, expanded on a little bit in Matthew chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. Going from that place, he went into the synagogue, shriveled hands there, um, lawful to heal on the Sabbath. Now he changes it a little more detail here. Is it lawful? He directly challenges what they're thinking is them, it's not lawful. And in passivity. So he's challenging the action, he's challenging their mindset. And he, he says this, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? Very practical issue, it's valuable to you. How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? So he, pract he challenged some of the ways that they would get around this. He says, therefore, it is lawful. He directly challenges their scaffold to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he does it. He's restored just as some of the others. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. So we know now that their rage goes beyond just the idea of, uh, of their anger towards him. It goes to the point that they want to kill him. These guys are feeling threatened in their position, threatened in, in social structure and esteemed. They're threatened in how they view their relationship with God and, and just as importantly, if more so, how God is viewing them. And when Jesus is telling them flat out, it's 
lawful to you on the Sabbath, that, that, that people are more important than animals, that they're more important than all the other structures. In fact, the structures were designed for people, not, not as opposed to that. When we got involved in the Osborne community, we had a, a list of values that we drew up rooted in the teachings of Christ as we understood them. And one of the most important ones to me of all of them that was sheer brilliance when the team came up with it was this, we will prior, prioritize people over processes. We'll prioritize people over processes. We get it from these issues that we read in Scripture of how Jesus engages things. Now, this anger, this rage that they had towards Jesus gets even more specific in a moment that we find in Mark chapter 11. Jesus has reached Jerusalem. It's the last week of his life. He enters the temple courts. It says that he begins driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturns the tables. He flips the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. He wouldn't allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written? So he's teaching while he's doing this. My house will be called a house of prayer. Notice the language here. For all nations but you've made a den of robbers. Now let's stop there for just a second. Leave the scripture up there. We'll stop a second. You can well, take it down if you need to, whatever, for the live stream, whatever. But, but let's fo- focus for a minute here. He's, he's flipping over tables. He's changing things, um, pushing the money changers out. They'd come with one denomination to change it for the local currency. All that would take place here. The temple layout was like this. The outer courts were where the Gentiles, non-Jews, would come in and begin to pursue God and they would worship God. If you were Jewish, you could go into this next point and you could worship God. If you were a Jewish male, you could go into this next point deeper in and worship God. If you were a priest, a deeper point, and then finally the Holy of Holies where only the high priest could go once a year. That was the progression. Where this buying and selling was going on was in this outer court where the Gentiles were. So what Jesus is addressing, and he spells it out, a place for all nations. You're limiting the the non-Jewish pursuers of God, you're interfering with their worship by having this commerce out in this area here. And, and so in zeal for the house of his father, he acts upon this. Now, we see this as this violent act, flipping over tables and beating people up and, and this violent act. Question mark to that. There was um, a group called the Temple Guards. They were like the local security team for, for the temple, Mount Arion. There was another group, there was a fortress that overlooked the temple directly, it was called the Fortress Antonio, and it was filled with Roman soldiers. And they purposely made it to overlook the temple area because they viewed the temple area as one of the most threatening places for a riot to occur because of its religious and political significance. So they wanted guys that could deploy quickly. If Jesus' actions had been truly violent, the temple guards would have reacted immediately to that. If they had failed to, absolutely the Roman soldiers would have reacted to that. Instead, what I think we're seeing here is something that could be viewed more, if you'll follow me on this, as a prophetic action. Prophetic isn't necessarily telling the future. It's an acting out of something on behalf of God. Uh, In the Old Testament, Hosea is this prophet who's required to marry this prostitute who runs away from him three times and therefore should be killed under the law, but he keeps drawing her back, and it was used as an illustration of God's love for us. It was a prophetic action on Hosea's part. Bummer for his home life, but uh, acting out in that way. Jesus, in the same way, is acting something out prophetically 
while actually taking an action here, but it's only a temporary action. It's not like it's going to change the pattern of what's going on there. He's doing it to emphasize this is for everybody, and you're taking it away when you do this. So it was a prophetic action. The response to the chief priests and teachers of the law, Pharisees and all, they began looking for a way to kill him. For they, let's put the scripture back up again, put that back up really fast, because they, what? The chief priests and teachers of the law heard this and they began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him. Let me try that again. They, teachers of the law heard him began looking for a way to kill him, for they, they feared him. It's our fear, oftentimes, that drives our anger. And so they fear him, and because of this, they decide that they're going to kill him. And the reality is, Jesus is dead within the week. When we're dealing with people in our own fear and anger, people that are taking things away from us that we feel are important, then we respond in not good ways. And one of the ways that we want to respond, if we're Christians, is to point to the scripture of Jesus doing what he's doing here and saying, all I'm doing is doing what Jesus did. I'm going to flip this over. I'm going to flip this over. I'm going to whip that thing. I'm going to do that. All we're doing is we're doing what Jesus did. I like this passage of scripture. I live in this passage of scripture. Someone has cut me off the road. I'm going to cut them off the road in Jesus' name. Okay. And so we get upset. What makes you angry? Jesus wasn't angry for himself. He was zealous for his father. Are we angry over righteous things or selfish things? Perhaps that's a conversation for another time. This is also why people were upset with Jesus because he challenged how they viewed themselves. Are we angry for righteous things or for selfish things? In this case, Christ is acting out something that's totally unique to him. He's the son of God in his father's house addressing a limitation of worshipers from having access to, to his father's house. It's unique to him. Question for you. Is that to be the norm for us as believers? Well, Jesus did it. Okay. Let's explore this just a little bit. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. You've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and those that make you fearful and angry. And pray for those who persecute you so that you may be the children of your Father in heaven. Verse 46 goes on and says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you get? Even the, even the sinners do that. If you greet or are warm to only your own people, what are you doing more than anybody else? Even pagans will do that. People are angry and violent. We want to be angry and violent back. And we go to ta- pages and, and sections like this flipping of tables, and, and this is where we want to go. Not one of us, there's not one of us who hasn't had uh, a, a fear of loss that has produced anger in our life, a killable rage that we want to justify in a thousand different ways. The person divorced me. They took all I had. I'm angry, I'm, I'm violent over that subject. My freedom is being taken from me. It's, it's a loss that I'm having. I'm angry, I'm fearful, I'm violent over those issues. But again, we go into what Jesus taught us, not just in Matthew, but look at this in John chapter 15. He says, my command is this, that everyone who offends you, you must destroy. 
Is anybody reading the Bible? My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. That's just stupid talk. Okay, that's just... He had a bad day. He was... He just... John chapter 15, later on in verse 17. This is my command. What? Love each other. This is my command. Okay, that's... That's whatever. John 13, 35. By this... Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you destroy them if they offend you. If they run you off the road, you run them off the road. There's a car theme here. We've got to deal with that another time. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you one another. There is no place in Scripture where we are commanded. They'll know you're my disciples if you flip over their tables. They will know you by your anger. This is my command, that you be violent, that you be aggressive, that you be disrespectful, harsh, meeting out punishment. My command is that you love each other. This is my command, that you love each other. By by this, everyone will know. Micah chapter 6, verse 8, in the Old Testament, he's shown us, O mortal, all of us, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? What does he want of us? What does he require of us? One, to act justly, to act with justice, to have justice be something that matters to us. But also to love mercy, that in the execution of seeking that justice, that we would be merciful, that we would love mercy. If someone falls or fails or they disappoint us or anger us, that, there, that if there's an opportunity to extend the mercy, that repentance, that we do so. And then to walk humbly. So one, we are commanded to love, not to flip tables. We are not Christ. One step further. Jesus is being taken in the garden and Peter pulls out his sword and Jesus said, oh yeah, you, you get them. Go get them, Peter. Well, answer the rest of you guys. Come on, get them. They're coming for me. Instead, what does he do? He rebukes who? Peter. One, we're commanded to love. Two, we are required to do justice that it matters to us. To love mercy. Love it. To walk humbly. I don't care if you are a justice warrior who is offended by the injustices that have occurred, racially or otherwise, if you are a Christian, you are not to operate by flipping tables and harming individuals verbally or otherwise. If you are a culture warrior, concerned about the degradation of our society, fearful of what you're about to lose or have lost, you're still not commanded to flip the tables, but instead commanded to love, commanded to love, required to seek justice, but to love mercy and to walk humbly. The Pharisees were in a rage. And when we are like that, we are weak people. And we win no one, not in their heart. When we win people over in love, it's by our lives, surrender, 
And that's the only time there's real change. They ultimately succeeded in killing Jesus. They silenced him. Mobs and crowds are crazy. Individual people may be one thing or another, but, but groups, they're terrifying. Men in black, the one guy saying, you know, person is smart, people are dumb, panicky, dangerous animals, and you know it. Whether it's a mob of a gang that's roaming around a city or whether it's a Facebook group that's decided to take down this person or the next or passing on garbage and building up their attitude. Groups are terrifying. Individuals won't do certain things, but when they're with a group, whether it's going out on a Friday night, getting drunk, or rioting in a mob, groups are scary people. And the mob eventually gets Jesus, and they say, crucify him. And he's crucified. But there was one guy in the middle of this. There was a guy named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a different kind of animal. Nicodemus in the midst of all of what's going on, he had a high position. He had a lot to lose. He was part of the ruling council. But in the midst of all this challenging and all the rage, he's hearing something from Jesus. There's this deep calling underneath the rage that's working within his heart and his spirit. Things are clicking differently in him, and he begins to challenge some of what's happening with Jesus at one point in time. He breaks from the group rage. And, and this deep calling pulls him to Jesus at night at one point in time. He's still a little worried about the crowd, so he comes at night. And he begins to inquire of things of Jesus in, in a significant passage that I won't put up on the screen right now, but I'll take you to John chapter 3. Because in John chapter 3, it says that he comes to Jesus at night. And he acknowledges, Rabbi, we know that you're somebody special and that you're doing something from God. We, we know that. Jesus says, you're right on, but here's the deal. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. How does anyone get born again? Surely you can't, you know, come out of the womb again. And Jesus says, I'm telling you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless you are born of the water and born of spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You shouldn't be surprised at my saying that you must be born again. And this is where the phrase comes in Christianity. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear a sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from, where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. Wait a minute, you're saying that my scaffold of good works doesn't matter anymore? It's gone? You're saying the structure of the laws and everything else? You're saying that God determines who he's going to approach. We don't approach him as such. And that there needs to be something that when we come to that realization of our brokenness and of our condition and the Holy Spirit whispers enough to us that our eyes are open and our ears can hear again, that, that we suddenly come into a position of grace that is like being born again, like I'm brand new. That means I've got to relearn everything again. All the guidelines I've felt, everything, I've got to start fresh. All my seniority is gone in a moment of time. And Jesus says, yeah. And then he tags in something at verse 14. He says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. The snakes are biting the people of Israel in the desert and, and to heal them. As Moses intercedes, God says, take one of the snakes, a bronze one, bronze it out, put it up on a stick, and, and whoever looks at it, just looks at it. If they're willing to just look at it, they're going to be healed. And that was to foretell this, as Jesus sang, as Moses lifted that up, so I'm going to have to be put up on a cross and crucified. And everyone who believes that I came 
to save them for sin is going to have eternal life in him. And that, all that we just discussed, is the context. Nicodemus breaking from the crowd, coming from beneath the rage to hear the calling of Christ, to engage about this born-again experience, and Jesus talking about him being lifted up, and anyone who looks upon him and believes will be saved. This is the context for John 3, 16. The 15th verse, anyone who believes may have eternal life. 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only son. A person is smart, people are dumb. Nicodemus hears this and he comes as an individual breaking from the crowd to come to Christ. I'm going to give you a statement off the side. Let it sink in your brain and we'll come back to where we're at right now. Biblical Christianity is unpopular because it challenges how we see ourselves. It challenges our status and our understanding. Biblical Christianity is unpopular and I would say that popular Christianity is often unbiblical. If you do understand these things and dig down deep you're going to continue to propagate the very ugliness that consumes this world and has since the time of Adam. Your fear of letting go, your fear of all that's involved, the anger of all that is inside, and all we do is propagate what already is. Really quickly, John 9.39 said, For judgment I have come into this world so the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What, are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you see, your guilt remains because you're not going to act on it in any way. As we wrap this up, I want to share with you something I came across ways back. There was a television show. I don't watch it often, but it's, um, oh, what is it? The uh, SVU, yeah, Law and Order. And there's was one situation, but this, this one really stuck out to me, and I've never forgotten it. There was a guy, uh, Frederick Nietzsche, made the statement this, whoever fights monsters should see to it that in the process he does not become a monster. And if you gaze long enough into an abyss, into the darkness the abyss of the darkness will gaze back into you. Saying that the more you study that, the more you begin to take on the very attributes of the thing that you hate. So in this one storyline, Olivia and her partners are, are uh, trying to track down this serial killer that's been practicing over the years. One person who um, had pursued this killer over the years and lost track and was brought in on this case. She's an FBI agent. I think her name was Lauren. So Lauren's assisting them, and at one point in time, they, they find the serial killer dead. They find his last victim at the end, and, and they manage to rescue the victim, but she's been so damaged that she dies too. As they explore things, they realize um, something about the death of the man that makes them realize that their colleague in this, this associate, this FBI agent, uh, Lauren, 
has, has, under the stress of pursuing these killers for so long, actually had caught the guy and murdered him. So they're going to her uh, apartment where they're going to um, confront her. And if she'll confess, they're going to offer her a very lenient sentence. She's torn by the conflict of being a person of the law who has broken the law. And so as she's engaging in the conversation and sitting before a desk, at one point in time near the end of it, as she explains what happened to her and why she went over the edge, she quotes Nietzsche at that point and says that she won't accept it. She's going to you know, take a different route here. Because in her words, because those who pursue monsters have to be very, and she uses a different word here to highlight it, but have to be very sure they do not become monsters. And as she makes that statement, because those of us who pursue monsters have to become very sure that we do not become monsters. She pulls out a gun and she shoots herself. And Olivia's horrified. We can be so caught up with fighting battles and out of our own fear of what we have lost or will lose that we fixate on that passage of flipping tables or we fixate on those things alone and we let those anger and we let those issues drive us. We emphasize. We emphasize things that we can to justify how we want to do things. And so, my question to you this morning, are you aware of your own rage or of the group that you travel with that reinforces that online or in person? Are you able in a moment of time to be able to step away from that as Nicodemus did and hear underneath the rage what he's calling out to you to do and to be? Or will you just follow along with the rage? We often know what to do. We just don't want to pay the price emotionally or otherwise. As we draw to its close, I challenge you, how you act, whether it's by the commandments of Christ and by his ways or the misapplication of even scripture. And then finally, I would say this. I'm caught again, as I was last week, by again an attribute of the Pharisees in that it says they watched him closely. That terrifies me. That they could watch him closely and still not see that their own prejudices, their own fears, their own things resulted in such a rage as to blind when they are right with him and watching him closely. We are to be different a peculiar people 
something different from how this world is. We're supposed to be the ones to change the world. But we can only do that if we let Christ address our fears, our rage. If somehow then we can come out underneath that, then, and only then, can we be part of a solution that can transform a world that is in deep, deep, dire need of transformation and change. This week, as you are engaging the people around you, I want you to process. Don't let what we talked about here stay in this room. As you encounter your own fears, you encounter your anger or the fear and anger of other people, process how you engage that and make a difference. Maybe it's going to be as simple as seeing someone in a beat-up old car at Tim Hortons and you decide to go ahead and buy their thing. Maybe it's when the person who asks you about dough egg at Starbucks that you decide to pick up some bill, but take some steps, take action in a way that transforms instead of being conformed. Would you stand with me, please? Father, as we continue to respond to your deep calling, as we continue to dig deep, I pray, Lord, that you would continue by your Holy Spirit to speak to us. Nicodemus was willing to come out of a crowd and have his life transformed, and I pray the same thing, Lord, that we be weary of crowds, weary of the mob, and that we would meet with you quietly and let you restore our soul, even to the point of being transformed and born again. Guide us in this, I pray, as your church. In Jesus' name, amen.